Hey everybody, today let's read a little bit of hate mail. So this message comes in from my friend, my new friend, Mark. Uh, I've decided I can't listen to your podcast anymore because of your hateful stance on the houseless population in your city. Clearly you can't grasp the fact that we are experiencing a housing crisis and blaming these people for the lowered quality of life in your city is misguided and cruel. I would suggest you either educate yourself on the root causes of the problem or go out and do something to actually help the situation rather than spewing your hateful rhetoric. Um, he goes on, but you get the idea. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad, Mark, I'm glad you wrote in because a couple of weeks ago, I found a very interesting article that actually goes a long way toward explaining why homelessness has exploded during the last decade and why it's uh, at least to some degree, ruining a lot of towns like mine here on the West Coast. Um, this article is in The Atlantic, and it's long, okay? So I'm warning you, this is a long article. I'm going to read some excerpts, but I'd really just recommend that you read the whole thing yourself. Um, it's it's very good, and it, I think it's very important material. I've got a link in the show notes, uh, but let's get to it. The title is... I don't know that I would even call it meth anymore. Different chemically than it was a decade ago, the drug is creating a wave of severe mental illness and worsening America's homeless population. By Sam Quinones. In the fall of 2006, law enforcement on the southwest border of the United States seized some crystal methamphetamine. In due course, a 5-gram sample of that seizure landed on the desk of a 31-year-old chemist named Joe Bazenko at the Drug Enforcement Administration lab outside Washington, D.C. Okay, this guy's a chemist who analyzes the chemical structures of drugs that the DEA seizes. Skipping ahead in the article. In the early 1980s, the ephedrine method for making meth was rediscovered by the American criminal world. Ephedrine was the active ingredient in over-the-counter decongestant Sudafed, and a long boom in meth supply followed. But the sample that arrived on Bazenko's desk that day in 2006 was not made from ephedrine, which was growing harder to come by as both the U.S. and Mexico clamped down on it. There was another way to make methamphetamine. Before the ephedrine method had been rediscovered, this other method had been used by the Hells Angels and other biker gangs, which had dominated a much smaller meth trade into the 80s. Its essential chemical was a clear liquid called phenyl-2-propanone, P2P. Many combinations of chemicals could be used to make P2P. Most of these chemicals were legal, cheap, and toxic. Cyanide, lye, mercury, sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, and nitrostyrene. The P2P process of making meth was complicated and volatile. The biker's cooking method gave off a smell so rank that it could only be done in rural or desert outposts, and the market for their product was limited. The P2P method offered traffickers one huge advantage. The chemicals that could be used to make it were also used in a wide variety of industries, among them racing fuel, tanning, gold mining, perfume, and photography. Law enforcement couldn't restrict all these chemicals the way it had with ephedrine, not without damaging legitimate sectors of the economy. 
And a trained organic chemist could make P2P, the essential ingredient, in many ways. It was impossible to say how many methods of making P2P a creative chemist might come up with. Bazenko counted a dozen or so at first. He put them up in a large diagram on his office wall and kept adding post-it notes with new ones as they appeared. As Bazenko dissected that sample in 2006, its implications hit him. Drugs made in a lab were not subject to weather or soil or season, only chemical availability. With this new method and full access to the world's chemical markets through Mexican shipping ports, traffickers could ramp up production of P2P meth in quantities that were effectively limitless. Even so, Bazenko couldn't have anticipated just how widely the meth epidemic would reach some 15 years later, or how it would come to interact with the opioid epidemic, which was then gaining force. And he couldn't know how strongly it would contribute to related scourges now very much evident in America, epidemics of mental illness and homelessness that year by year are growing worse. Okay, so in its most basic terms, this new meth now that you can't find ephedrine, is made with a number of toxic chemicals. It's bad. It's way worse than the old meth, okay? And you're seeing the results every day, but nobody's talking about it. Why? Well, we'll get into that. So the article goes into detail about the industrial-sized factories in Mexico that were and, and still are cooking up this P2P meth. So then the article continues. Nothing like this had been achieved with ephedrine, nor could it have been. No one could have imagined the accumulation of 900 metric tons of the chemical. Later, Mexican investigators would report that of the 16 workers arrested at the Queretaro lab, 14 died over the next six months from liver failure, presumably caused by exposure to chemicals at the lab. Okay, so back to me, this is some fucking bad shit. Seriously, this is not a joke, okay? Now, I remember little meth labs back home in Central Oregon back in the 80s. Yeah, occasionally you'd hear about them like exploding. And I, I actually even had an abandoned mobile home meth lab on the property of a place that I rented when I was 21. We rented this 40-acre spread. And you could tell that this place was a meth lab because it reeked of piss even years after it had been abandoned. Um, and all that said, you know, these, these little meth labs that were scattered all throughout Central Oregon were pretty innocuous and people weren't dying of liver failure six months after cooking in these labs. Anyway, I digress. Back to the article. Um, one night in 2009, in Temecula, California, partway between San Diego and LA, a longtime user of crystal meth named Eric Barrera felt the dope change. Barrera is a stocky ex-Marine who'd grown up in the LA area. The meth he had been using for several years by then made him talkative and euphoric, made his scalp tingle. But that night, he was gripped with paranoia. His girlfriend, he was sure, had a man in her apartment. No one was in the apartment, she insisted. Barrera took a kitchen knife and began stabbing a sofa, certain the man was hiding in there. Then he stabbed a mattress to tatters, and finally he began stabbing the walls, looking for this man he imagined was hiding inside. Quote, that never happened before, he told me when I met him years later. Barrera was hardly alone in noting a change. Gang member friends from his old neighborhood took to calling the meth that had begun to circulate in the area that at that time, weirdo dope. So 
The article goes into some more detail about how Barrera and this bad meth made its way across the country. Um, but here's the last bit that I'm going to share from the author. Over the past year and a half, I've talked with meth addicts, counselors, and cops around the country. The people I spoke with told me stories nearly identical to Eric Barrera's. P2P meth use was quickly causing steep deterioration in mental health. The symptoms were always similar. Violent paranoia, hallucinations, conspiracy theories, isolation, massive memory loss, jumbled speech. Methamphetamine is a neurotoxin. It damages the brain no matter how it is derived. But P2P meth seems to create a higher order of cerebral catastrophe. Quote, I don't know that I would even call it meth anymore. Ken Vick, the director of Drug Treatment Center in Kansas City, Missouri, told me. Schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are afflictions that begin in the young. Now, people in their 30s and 40s with no prior history of mental illness seem to be going mad. Portland, Oregon began seeing the flood of meth around 2013. By January 2020, the city had to close down its downtown sobering station. The station had opened in 1985 as a place for alcoholics to sober up for six to eight hours, but it was unequipped to handle the people addicted to P2P meth. Quote, the degree of mental health disturbance, the wave of psychosis, the profound disorganization is something I've never seen before. Rachel Solitaroff, the CEO of Central City Concern, the social service nonprofit that ran the station, told the author. Solitaroff was among the first people I spoke with. She sounded overwhelmed. Quote, if they're not raging and agitated, they can be completely non-communicative. Treating addiction relies on your ability to have connection with someone. But I've never experienced something like this, where there's just no way into that person, end quote. Susan Partovi has been a physician for the homeless people in Los Angeles since 2003. She noticed increasing mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder at her clinics around the city starting in about 2012. She was soon astonished by how many severely mentally ill people were out there, Partovi told me. Now almost everyone we see when we do homeless outreach on the streets is on meth. Meth may now be causing long-term psychosis similar to schizophrenia that lasts even after they're not using anymore, end quote. Southwest Virginia hadn't seen much meth for almost a decade when suddenly in about 2017, quote, we started to see people go into the state mental hospital system who were just grossly psychotic. Eric Green, then a drug counselor in the area, told me. Since then, it's caused a crisis in our state mental health hospitals. It's difficult for the truly mentally ill to get care because the facilities are full of people who are on meth, end quote. Symptoms could fade once users purged the drug if they didn't relapse. But while they were on this new meth, they grew antisocial, all but mute. I spoke with two recovering meth addicts who said they had to relearn how to speak. Quote, it took me a year and a half to recover from the brain damage it had done to me, one of them said. I couldn't hardly form sentences. I couldn't laugh, smile. I couldn't think. In the L.A. area, homelessness more than doubled from 2012 to 2020. Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Craig Mitchell told me that the most visible homelessness, people sleeping on the sidewalks or in tents that now crowd many of the city's neighborhood, was clearly due to the new meth. 
quote, there was a sea change with respect to meth being the main drug of choice beginning in about 2008, he said. Now it's the number one drug. Remarkably, meth rarely comes up in city discussions on homelessness or in newspaper articles about it. Mitchell called it, quote, the elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it, he said. There's a desire not to stigmatize the homeless as drug users. Policymakers and advocates instead prefer to focus on L.A.'s cost of housing, which is very high but hardly relevant to people rendered psychotic and unemployable by methamphetamine. Addiction and mental illness have always been contributors to homelessness. P2P meth seems to produce those conditions quickly. It took me 12 years of using before I was homeless. Tally Wenick, a counselor in Bend, Oregon, who began using ephedrine-based meth in 1993, and has been clean for 15 years, told me. Now, within a year, they're homeless. So many homeless camps have propped up around Central Oregon. Huge camps on Bureau of Land Management land, with tents and campers and roads they've cleared themselves, and almost everyone's using. You're trying to help someone get clean, and they live in a camp where almost everyone is using. Okay, uh, quick aside, uh, Bend, Oregon, my hometown, I've seen it. These fucking homeless camps are insane. And this is a beautiful part of the world. I mean, these are, these are juniper forests, you know, high desert, beautiful areas, sometimes near rivers where they become litter, just filled homeless shitholes. And it's an environmental catastrophe in addition to the kind of human toll that it's taking. So it's bad news. Back to the article. But it must be said... The story of the meth epidemic, like the opioid epidemic before it, begins with supply. In a previous era, most Vietnam vets kicked heroin when they got home and were far from war and the potent supplies they were used to in Southeast Asia. Today, supplies of meth are vast and cheap throughout much of the country. So that's uh, that's the end of my reading here. So if you want to read the whole article, you should. Links in the show notes. Also, please note that last statement about the epidemic beginning with supply. Supply. When you talk about supplies of this new meth coming over the border, well, it's a lot easier now to get it into the country. You may or may not have heard, thanks to the current administration's soft or non-existent stance on border security, but people are crossing in record amounts this year. And as a direct result of this deluge of humans that we're getting coming in, the Border Patrol has been stretched to the limit and hasn't been able to allocate the resources necessary to stem the tide of the meth that's coming into the country, okay? So I don't care about your politics, and if you want the U.S. to be the only country in the world with open borders, you're totally welcome to your opinion. But our current inability or unwillingness from the top to manage our border crisis is exacerbating this meth problem. In the process, prices are staying very low and availability is very high. So you couple that with towns like Portland, where I live, decriminalizing drugs. And it's very easy to explain why our cities are turning into third world shitholes where normal, sober, taxpaying citizens are afraid to go. So back to you, Mark. I'm just sharing what the hell's going on. I'm not spreading hate, but I'm also not spreading the false notion that the homeless crisis is a direct result of the housing shortage, because it's not. Um, remember a, a couple episodes back, I shared the fact that I saw a guy coming out of a homeless camp about 10 miles outside of downtown Portland, down in the formerly safe suburbs, brandishing a baseball bat wrapped with barbed wire. 
Yes, you heard that right. I saw this guy with my own eyes. Now, how would you feel if you were waiting at a bus stop with your kids and some crazed, paranoid, homeless dude with a bat wrapped with barbed wire approached you? You know, and back in 2018, 50% of all arrests in Portland were homeless people. 50 fucking percent. So if you think I'm an asshole for saying that the homeless situation is ruining our quality of life, then yeah, I'm an asshole. And yes, homeless people are decreasing the quality of life in Portland. So we've basically, here we've lost our Chinatown here, thanks to homelessness. Um, restaurants that have been here for generations are closing because people are afraid to go to that area anymore. Our old town and Chinatown areas are fucking gross, um, not to mention unsafe. And what's making them gross and unsafe? Yes, it's homeless people. So if me stating facts like that makes you, Mark, uncomfortable, I'm glad you won't be listening to the podcast anymore. So for everyone else, please check this article out in The Atlantic. It's frightening, but very thought-provoking and very eye-opening. I've put links in the, the show notes. Okay, enough about that. Let's talk about XRP real quick. So um, a couple of weeks ago, I gave you uh, that workaround to buy XRP. Um, and if you hadn't heard that episode, that's episode 48. If you recall, uh, XRP, the Ripple token was delisted on all the US crypto exchanges due to the legal case uh, with, the, uh, with the SEC. But yes, you still can trade for XRP. And uh, I show you how in that episode 48. But here's my problem. My problem is having to wait to move my crypto. So if you haven't tried to move your holdings after you buy them from an exchange, um, like into a software wallet or the like, this is going to be meaningless to you. But I've found that with Coinbase and BlockFi, they either put a hold on your crypto after you buy it, like like with Coinbase, it seems like it can be up to a week before they'll let you pull crypto out that you just bought. And with BlockFi, just the removal itself, which should be instant, can take a couple of days. So if you've experienced that frustration, I found a workaround for that, and that is Kraken. Kraken is an exchange like Coinbase, BlockFi, or Gemini, but it's one of those um, that I've talked about that gives you pretty great interest rates if you stake or store your crypto on their platform. Uh, on Kraken right now, I'm getting 6.5% on my Solana. Um, I'm getting 7% APY on the Cosmos token, uh, and I'm getting between 4 and 6 on my Cardano. Oh, and a, and a whopping 20% annual percentage yield on Kava. Okay, all that said, the only token that I've got a significant amount in on Kraken, well, a significant amount to me, is uh, which is around 10 grand, is Solana. Um, but either way, the value of my crypto holdings are holding steady or growing, and I'm getting a nice little interest rate on Kraken at the same time. So that's a win-win. But anyway, the cool thing about Kraken which, uh, by the way, is K-R-A-K-E-N.com, is that if you buy crypto there, it's available to withdraw immediately. So today I wanted to put one last little blast into my atomic wallet so I could buy some more XRP. So I bought some Bitcoin on Kraken, immediately withdrew it and sent it to my atomic wallet. And then within the atomic wallet did the exchange for XRP. So now um, I'm also sitting on about 10 grand worth of XRP, and that's where I'm going to stop. Now this this XRP play is pure, unadulterated gambling. Um, and if something goes sideways for Ripple in the trial, I'm completely screwed. But if things go right, people are out there, I mean, they're talking about $15 XRP. And if and if then if Ripple gets out of the trial unscathed and goes public, people are saying it could go up into the 20s. As of right now, it's trading at a buck 27. So 
I'm willing to take that risk. Please don't take this as financial advice. I'm just sharing my little speculation hobby here. So once again, if you want to buy XRP, you need to get some kind of funds into a wallet like the Atomic Wallet where you can do the exchanges because the uh, U.S. exchanges won't let you buy it directly. And if you want to do it quickly without having to wait to move that crypto that you just bought, the one option that you have uh, is to use Kraken. I mean, I'm sure there are other exchanges that give you immediate access. I just don't know which ones do. All the ones that I've tried don't. So uh, Kraken allows you to route some of those funds directly and immediately to the wallet. And literally today, it took me five minutes to make the whole thing happen. So that's that. Okay, next up, crypto mining stocks. Uh, remember a couple episodes uh, ago, I told you that you should consider watching uh, ARBK or Argo blockchain, the crypto miner? Well, on October 25th, I ended up throwing in a grand on them just in my brokerage account, just for fun. Um, and the returns have not been anything to write home about. As of right now, I'm up about 3.5% on Argo. But the process of doing my little cursory research on Argo led me to some other crypto miners. And I had some free cash in my HSA, so I went in on three miners just for the hell of it. That said, you know, I hope you took my advice just to check out Argo, and I hope that it led you to do some more industry research like I did, because the other stocks that I found are seriously kicking ass. I ended up buying Hive Blockchain, ticker symbol H-I-V-E, Marathon Digital Holdings, uh, ticker symbol M-A-R-A, and Riot Blockchain, ticker symbol Riot. And so I bought those three stocks on October 29th. And as of today, Monday, November 8th, here's how they've performed. Hive, up over 26%. Riot, up over 32%. And Marathon, up almost 46%. That's right, 46%. Now, word to the wise, uh, Riot and Marathon have earnings calls this week, so this could all get wiped out with a disappointing quarter, but it's still pretty cool. And if we are indeed looking at a few months worth of a Bitcoin bull market, these stocks are about as correlated as you can get. So I'm going to stay the course. And speaking of HSAs, if you haven't fully absorbed the majesty of the triple tax advantaged health savings account, please go back and listen to my deep dive on HSAs. So that's episode 22 and it's really important if you're self-employed. We're uh, we're back in the health insurance open enrollment period now. And so if you're feeling like you want and can have a high deductible plan in 2022, you can get an HSA eligible plan and contribute uh, $3,650 in 2022 if you're an individual or $7,300 if you're on a family plan. And that's tax deductible going in. It grows tax-free, and when you pull it out for qualified medical expenses, your withdrawals are tax-free. It's beautiful. It's perfect for us self-employed people, um, you know, and medical expenses are going to be horrendous after you turn 65 or so, so get started now. Uh, end of sermon. Okay, that's it for today. Um, but before I sign off, remember to sign up for a BlockFi account, you know, um, go to rogueretirementlounge.com slash crypto. And you'll be eligible to free for free crypto when you sign up. And seriously, I've reached the point where I'm telling everyone I know you should own one Bitcoin, just one Bitcoin, you know, at least. If you look at the charts, unless something really goes out of whack, that one Bitcoin could easily be worth over 500 grand in the next five to 10 years. I mean, 
On my end, it's fun to play with these altcoins and get crazy interest rates and in some cases get crazy returns. I mean, I tripled my money in Solana in the last month or two. Um, and, you know, anyway, even though we're pretty much at all time highs, I do believe that we're at a point in history where everyone should either own or be dollar cost averaging toward the goal of owning at least one Bitcoin. And the easiest, most user-friendly way to get into crypto is seriously on BlockFi. So do me a favor, go to rogueretirementlounge.com slash crypto and sign up for BlockFi. You're going to get free Bitcoin in the process and you'll be supporting the show. So on that note, I will catch you soon. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.